It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 241 for May 8, 2011. Portions transcribed May 5th, 2011, and other days. A couple of years ago, I talked about Zara Web Designer. It said it was fast and easy. And I was right at the time, but now there's something that's even better. It's faster and easier. It's Zara Web Designer 7, the latest version. If you're designing a website, you could use Microsoft Expression Studio. Cost you $150 to $600, depending on the features you want to buy. Or Adobe Dreamweaver, $400 to $1,800, depending on the features you need there. Or Zara Web Designer 7, 50 bucks, or $100 if you need the expensive version. The question you're asking is whether an application with such a modest price tag can deliver. Okay, so let's find out. When I reviewed Zara Web Designer two years ago, I said, and I quote myself, for $50 you won't find a more powerful, faster, or more versatile web page designer than Zara Web Designer. This isn't the right tool for use with a suite with hundreds of pages, but if your goal is to create a high-style website without spending a lot of money, don't overlook Zara Web Designer. End quote. Most of that still applies to Zara Web Designer Premium 7. The basic application is still $50, and the premium version with a variety of features that will appeal to commercial developers is $100. What doesn't apply as much today is my comment about not being able to use the tool for sites with hundreds of pages. That's no longer entirely true because Zara Web Designer can now update all occurrences of a repeating object when it's edited. The object will be changed throughout the site. An application such as Dreamweaver does this by means of library and template documents. One of the first things you'll notice, though, about Zara is that this application stores the entire website as a single file. So the changes are more akin to find and replace in a Word document. You can download and try either version, the $50 standard version or the $100 pro version, for free. And when you open the application, you'll find that Zara has provided a five-page website. This might not seem like a big deal, but if you do more than just glance at it before closing it and working on your own, you'll see that it's a short tutorial. And to quote Zara, a working website document you can experiment on. If you're reading this in Web Designer, then feel free to experiment and explore the features of the program. If you're reading this as a web page, then this is an example of what you could be producing with Zara Web Designer. <laughs> Clever. So rather than create my own test website for use with this article, as I did the last time around, I decided to work through the sample site, introduction.xar. In looking over the first page and the list of pages to the right of the screen, I noticed some triangles at the left of each page. And by the way, check this out on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. It seemed unlikely that these little triangles would be decorations, so I clicked one to see what would happen. 
Now, this immediately revealed a list of elements on the page, and many of the elements had sub-elements. You'll see those if, once you open an element, there's an additional triangle below it. Click that, it twirls open to reveal additional components. A shell within a shell. At any time, you can quickly preview the page in a built-in browser, but to really be sure what will happen, you need to view the site in the primary browsers you expect site visitors to be using. From the Zara browser, you can immediately jump to any browser that's installed on your computer. In my case, that would be Chrome, Firefox, Internet Explorer, Opera, and Safari. The instructions on page one invited me to try changing the colors. So I did. Each theme's colors are at the left side of the color line. To change a color, just right-click the swatch and select Edit. doesn't get much easier than that. The swatch even tells you what the color is used for. Text, page, background, accent, whatever. On the next page, I was encouraged to grab the watermark graphic in the lower right corner of the page and do something with it. Okay, so I changed the size, made it a good bit larger, changed the color. Placing more text on a button automatically causes the button to grow. In fact, it expanded off the page. So I just grabbed it and pulled it back onto the page. And the text the button would have obscured obligingly moved out of the way. When I dropped a new photo onto an existing photo, I received a notice that this would replace two images on the page. It's because rolling the mouse over the smaller image on the page causes each to be displayed as a larger image. So dropping just one photo swaps both photos on the page. I continue to be amazed by how easy this is. And there was another image on the page. It was a sepia tone image. I decided it wasn't large enough, so I made it larger, then dropped another full-color image onto the sepia tone area. This also replaced a second copy of the image, one that's in color behind the sepia image. I made the image on top larger, but left the color image full frame, so that when a visitor mouses over the image, the photo becomes a full-color photo and changes from a close-up to the full frame. Oh, and the text changes, too. This is all done with layers and rather fancy JavaScript, but you don't have to know any of that. It just all happens in the background. The real beauty of all this is that it just works. Grab something, move it, rotate it, change its color. And better yet, in most cases, the code even passes W3C validation testing. I've provided links on the TechBiter Worldwide website to the before website, the way it comes from Zara, and the after website, what I did with it. So depending on how much information you want to see, just open one or the other or both of the files that you'll find linked on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Each opens in a new window so you can view what was and what I changed it to. The bottom line for Zara website designer, well, five cats. It's rather like hiring a mind reader to design your site. If you're planning a large commercial website like Amazon.com, okay, this is still not the application you need. But for sites that consist of a few pages or a few dozen pages, it could be a superb fit. And if your goal is to build a basic family or small business website, the application will cost less than an hour's worth of time 
for a professional web developer. For more information, visit the Zara website. You will, of course, find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. I have mentioned before that I like bokeh. Bokeh is the name of a photographic effect that allows everything in front of or behind the main subject to be out of focus. Too much depth of field can cause an image to appear flat, and it can even make the image confusing because the viewer isn't able to tell what's important. One way to obtain bokeh is by using an expensive lens that has an extraordinarily wide aperture. Another way is by means of a new and improved version of bokeh from Alien Skin Software. You've got to look at the TechBiter Worldwide website to see how this works. I started with an image that needed a little bit of help. It's a street performer at the South Street Seaport in Lower Manhattan. This guy is so flexible that he can fold himself into a small box. There was a lot going on in the photograph I had, though the building in the background is bright and it pulls attention away from the performer. Everything in the foreground and background is in focus. That's because this image came from a basic point-and-shoot camera. And those kinds of cameras are designed to make sure that everything is in focus from close to far away. Often that's a good thing, but it's not what was needed right here. I could improve the photograph with a bit of judicious cropping, and I did that. There was a guy in a hat in the foreground. He was distracting. I cropped him away. And some of the distractions in the background were eliminated when I cropped the image. But there are two signs on the wall in the background. They just beg to be read. And there's a lamp post and a building. These call attention to themselves. Even worse, the light pole bisects the performer's knee. How uncomfortable is that? A little judicious masking with Photoshop's selection tools, followed by an application of Bokeh 2, suddenly the performer is the center of attention. But I decided this could be better yet. The background to the right of the performer was still too bright. Photographers might call this hot. I'd like to darken it a bit. So I created a second copy of the Bokeh layer behind the original Bokeh layer and applied an adjustment layer to darken the image. The final step involved adding a transparency mask to the lighter bokeh image on top, making the right side of the lighter image transparent so that the darker background image would be visible. The result? Not bad for a simple point-and-shoot camera, with a little help from Alien Skin Bokeh 2 and Photoshop CS5. That image required a mask. And masks are essential for images such as that one because the in-focus area must be tightly defined and it doesn't fit into a square, circular, rectangular, or oval shape. Sometimes you get lucky, though, and you have an image that doesn't need a mask. You've probably seen photos of model railroads and such that have a shallow depth of field, and because of that, you know the picture is that of a model. But what if you wanted to take a real image and make it appear to be a miniature. Easy. So here's my starting point. It's a view outside my hotel window in San Diego when I was an instructor at one of Rick Altman's Corel World programs. Everything is in focus, so this is clearly a real-life image of the San Diego light rail trolley. That trolley runs from north of San Diego to near the Mexican border at San Isidro. Well, I loaded the image into Photoshop and pulled up the Bokeh 2 filter. 
And on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll be able to see that I have rotated the plane of focus so that it runs along the rail line. And I've pulled a zone of focus out a little bit. That's all I had to do. Then I clicked OK. So now I have a photo that looks like a photo of a model railroad except that those condos in the background and the trees in the foreground are real. They just look like a model. Bottom line for Alien Skin Bokeh 2, Alien Skin puts high-priced glass on any camera, and for that, they get five cats. Alien Skin's tagline for Bokeh is, and I quote, creative focus made easy, and pretty much tells the tale. Large aperture lenses that create great natural bokeh are expensive. You would get phenomenal bokeh from a Nikon 600mm f4 telephoto lens. Price tag? $10,300. Or an AFS Nikkor 200mm f2 telephoto lens. List price $5,900. Canon's EF 600mm f4 telephoto lens. Oh, it would do an equally astounding job for just $12,000. Or how about the Canon EF 400 2.8 image stabilizer lens? $8,000. Oh, wait, you might prefer Alien Skin's $200 Bokeh 2. It's also available as part of the $600 image bundle that includes Exposure 3, Blow Up 2, Snap Art 2, Bokeh 2, and Image Doctor 2. For more information, you can visit the Alien Skin website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. I mentioned Adobe Photoshop in the previous Alien Skin article. Well, Creative Suite 5.5 Master Collection flew over my transom last week and landed with enough force that I seemed to levitate for several moments. I had expected to have at least 8 to 12 months to recover from CS5 and prepare for CS6. Bad chance of that. It's still too early for a complete review of any component, but CS 5.5 has been on my computer long enough for me to say this. Wow. First, I can say welcome home to Audition. Included in CS 3, Audition was left out of CS 4 in favor of Sound Booth. No new version in CS 5 either, but it's back in CS 5.5, and I was frightened for a few moments when I learned that Audition CS 5.5 can't read an Audition CS 3 session file. Those of us who are using Audition 3 simply need to save those session files as XML documents, and then they can be imported into Audition CS 5. There are still some warnings, and some things don't transfer properly. But the interface update alone looks like it's going to be worth any pain that comes with the transition. Some of the CS5 applications changed not at all, while others received minor updates, and a few received massive injections of new features. The video applications, Audition, Dreamweaver, Flash, Illustrator, and InDesign, have all been modified to create better output for mobile devices. As a result, designers and developers will be able to create better content for smartphones and tablet systems. HTML5 is more completely supported, and Flash authoring has been improved. It appears to me that if you're a developer who's trying to stay somewhere in the general vicinity of technology's cutting edge, you will want to obtain the update soon, and preferably today. 
It's still far too early for me to make any judgment calls, but I can tell you this. The next several months are going to be interesting as I work my way through these new releases from Adobe. What do you want here, an iPad or a netbook? Well, it depends. One of my co-workers has an iPad, and it is clearly a very cool product. The company I work for doesn't allow the use of common email ports, those would be 25 and 110, from any company-owned gear, and also blocks all instant message services. I could forward all my messages to Gmail and use the web interface, but I don't like webmail, and there's still no solution for instant messaging. The company does provide a Wi-Fi option for employee-owned gear, employee-owned gear only. So, should I pick a netbook? or the iPad. What I selected, and what you might select, in the same situation, could differ. Neither option is right or wrong, so it's important to select the option that is right for you. I thought I'd share with you the process that I used to decide, and this may not be the right decision process for you. The data points that I used, number one, price is not the only consideration. And it shouldn't be the most important consideration. But it's an easy one to get out of the way. The basic iPad costs $400. But Apple has another model that costs about twice that amount. So with an iPad, the expenditure would have been $400 minimum, but probably more like $800 or $1,000 by the time I got a system that would meet my needs. Netbook computers are priced from less than $300 to about $500. So the price advantage is easily grabbed by the netbook. Winner here, netbook. Next, I considered what I wanted to do. The important things are email, and I use the BAT, which is available on Windows only. That's my preferred email client. Spam elimination, I use Anti-Spam Sniper. It's a Windows-only application. I really do need, for work and for home use, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and Access. I need these Windows-only applications. And I'd like to run Ubuntu Linux on the machines. It'd be nice if I could install and use Linux. So, although the iPad is really cool, well, I'd need to use an Apple email solution. And I don't really like most of Apple's email solutions. Anti-spam sniper? (laughs) Sorry, that's not going to work on an iOS system. The Microsoft Office Suite? Sorry, not on an iPad. And as for Linux... Well, the only company more frightened of Linux than Microsoft is Apple. So the decision turned out to be easier than I had expected. I bought an Asus PC1215T netbook. It's a single-core AMD processor with 2 gigabytes of RAM, 320 gigabyte hard drive, and Windows 7 Home Premium. As computers go, this is a low-performance machine. It won't run most of the Adobe applications acceptably. That's okay, though, because what I primarily need from this machine is email and Internet messaging. The ability to add the full Microsoft Office suite is a plus, and loading Ubuntu Linux, although it turned out to be a bit of a challenge, took less than a day. Now, admittedly, this is a pitifully underpowered computer that would be completely unacceptable for those who need to use Photoshop to modify images, InDesign to develop complex publications, or Premiere to create video productions. 
I don't plan to use the netbook for any of those tasks, and I wouldn't be able to use the iPad for such tasks either. The netbook is slightly larger than the iPad. If you consider the fact that the netbook must be unfolded to work, it's a lot larger. The netbook's graphics are nowhere near as cool as the iPad's, but the difference in price, the availability of applications I need, interoperability with my home computers, and the ability to load Linux made the decision really easy. One day after receiving the netbook, I had all of my essential Windows applications running, Linux 11.04 installed, and WAMP, that's the Windows version of the Apache server, MySQL, and PHP, all of those were operational. And all of this, by the way, on a computer that weighs about three pounds. Ian Short Circuits had a question the other day about an HDMI cable. You can buy really expensive HDMI cables. So you're setting up a new digital video entertainment center. You want only the best. When it comes to cables, you figure you got a great deal by purchasing a six-foot monster HDMI cable, list $130, from Amazon.com for 59 bucks. So did you get a good deal? Well, in a word, no. Amazon also has six-foot HDMI cables for less than $3. They are, of course, made in China. And you can easily find HDMI cables for less than $10. So why pay $60 or $100? Because they're going to give you better video? The expensive cables have gold-plated contacts. Okay, so what? HDMI is digital. That's what the D stands for in there. The gold does nothing. Digital signals either work or they don't. There is nothing in between. No better, no worse. Just okay or not. The cheapest, reasonably well-constructed cable is all you need. Picture quality, sharpness, color brightness, all those will not be improved by a more expensive cable or degraded by an inexpensive cable. Either the signal gets from point A to point B, or it doesn't. In the old analog days, a lot of people connected speakers to their amplifiers with plain old lamp cord, the stuff you could buy at the hardware store. You could get better cables with gold-plated contacts, and maybe you could hear the difference because those signals were analog. Those days are long gone. So the question is, should you spend several hundred dollars on fancy gold-plated cables because the sales guy says the video will look better and the audio will sound better? In my opinion, and that of professional testing organizations, the answer is a resounding no. And if you find any credible research from, say, Consumer Reports or some similar organization that says there is a difference between cheap digital cables and expensive digital cables, please let me know. In 2008, Popular Mechanics published the results of their research that concluded there is no visible difference between an inexpensive cable from Newegg and $100 cables. You'll find a link to that study on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.